All right, if you stand with me for the reading of God's Word, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be reading verses 27 through 30 this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, Pew Bible in front of you, you can find it on page 553, the Pew Bible, Matthew chapter 5. Pastor Bruce continues uh, in a series looking at uh, different topics from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Today is uh, adultery, adultery in the heart, and we're going to use uh, these four verses as uh, the text for his sermon this morning. So follow along as I read Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you for your word and we thank you for your son who was our savior redeemed us on the cross and for this sermon that he preached and that uh, just we thank you for our pastors that have been taking us through it and ask that uh, you would be with Pastor Bruce as he uh, as he just brings your message this morning that you've laid on his heart and help us to have open hearts and minds uh, and just to uh, be changed by your word not only this day but every day as we're in it in Jesus name amen There's no doubt those are hard words that Zach read for us here in Matthew chapter 5. But I want you to know from the outset, while those are hard words, they are not harmful words. Hard words are not harmful words when they come from Jesus Christ. This passage here is here because God cares about the person you are becoming. And being a Christ follower means everything is open for Him to conform into His image, including our sexuality. And so I want to encourage you, in fact, implore you, to open your hearts to the full impact of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is not out to harm you, but to help you. We live in a sex-crazed culture where even Christians are beginning to believe that sexual freedom trumps all other freedoms. But what does our Lord and Savior say? What does Jesus have to say about sexuality? When it comes to sexuality, culture says express it, indulge it, give in to your sexual desires, do what you want, when you want, with whoever you want. Combine this philosophy of sexual freedom with the technology that we all hold in our hands, and it's easy to see why Jesus' words here are so helpful for us today. To put this in perspective, just consider that the Internet was not available for wide public use until the mid-1990s. And so when today's college students were born, there were less than 1,000 websites, while today there's billions of websites. 
college students born in 1998 were born the same year that Google was invented. And now there are about 3 billion searches daily on Google. The iPhone was introduced in 2007. And with it, the World Wide Web became accessible in our hands. Today, 73% of young people say they feel helpless without a phone. I can't live. We know that the porn industry is maximizing on all of this. The Huffington Post recently said that porn sites have more visitors each month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined. And so understand something here. The culture, the porn, porn is the culture that our young people are growing up in today. Recent studies show that 90% of boys and 60% of girls are exposed to Internet pornography by the age of 18. Mark Regerness, a research professor at the University of Texas, put out a study of porn use among 18 to 23-year-olds. He found that 86% of young men and 31% of young women interact with porn at least once a month. And just under 50% of college men watch porn weekly. Obviously, those numbers say porn is much more of an issue with men, but at the same time, it is something women struggle with too, albeit with differing motives. And so at the outset here, we see, we understand that lust is everyone's problem. As we will see, it is also the basis for outward sins such as adultery. I can say that Jesus offers us some good news, though. I'm happy about that. I'm happy to stand here and say we have good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Jesus also offers us a warning because he loves us. Jesus wants us to know that if you do not heed what he says and you do not let him shape your thinking in this area, you will destroy yourself. Lust has the potential to devour unlike anything else. But the good news is in Jesus Christ, there's hope for anyone who struggles with lust. And there is forgiveness of all sexual sins, including adultery. Just as we saw in the previous section on the Sermon on the Mount here, as we're making our way through, the road to exceeding righteousness that Jesus calls us to begins with repentance. And in the context of what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5, we must repent of adultery without sex and pursue purity in heart. In this section of Matthew 5, Jesus is giving us another example of what exceedingly exceeding or surpassing righteousness looks like for those who claim to be kingdom citizens, for those who claim to be part of the kingdom of God. That is, you have now trusted in Jesus Christ. You are now a Christ follower by your faith In Jesus Christ, by your repentance of your sin and the forgiveness you have received and the faith that you put in Jesus Christ for your salvation. And as a kingdom citizen, Jesus is laying out for us. Here's what it looks like to now live as a kingdom citizen here on this earth. 
Jesus says now in describing this to us in Matthew chapter 5, 27 through 28, he says, listen, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In the previous section, verses 21 through 26, Jesus told us what the sixth commandment really meant. Not only does it prohibit murder, but it also includes harboring anger in your heart toward another person. In other words, what Jesus is doing for us, he is pushing beyond the external deeds to probe now the issues of the heart that actually lead to murder. And he does the same thing here in this section, but he does it with adultery and the issue of lust in the heart. In essence, Jesus now calls us to a radical standard and a radical strategy for sexual purity as kingdom citizens. So let's unpack this. What does it mean? What is Jesus telling us here on how to live sexually pure of mind and heart and life as a kingdom citizen? Notice number one. Jesus calls us to a radical standard of sexual purity. Jesus begins by restating the seventh commandment that we find in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, and the seventh commandment states, you shall not commit adultery. Now, perhaps everyone agrees that murder is still wrong. And perhaps there are some who still affirm that adultery is immoral. But by and large, I think we would have to admit that our society has moved a long way from the standard that sex outside of marriage is wrong. Especially if there is, well, there's love. But as we shall see, such a philosophy distorts the biblical perspective of both love and marriage. You see, the standard of sexual purity, notice this, here's what the Jewish tradition said. Here's what the Pharisees were alluding to. They were saying that whoever avoids the act of adultery has kept the seventh commandment, which states you shall not commit adultery. Now, perhaps we should define adultery. After all, terms are important, and being on the same page of what everything is is equally important. Adultery is simply when a married person engages in a sexual relationship with any other person other than their spouse. We could summarize it this way. It is sex outside of marriage. That's adultery. And adultery is offensive to God, not only because it violates another person and the other spouse, but because it damages the marriage covenant that is supposed to reflect the faithful relationship between God and his people. This is why adultery is so serious in God's eyes. It shatters lives. It disrupts families, and it despises God. In fact, God takes this commandment so seriously that the penalty for adultery in the Old Testament was Death, according to Leviticus 20, verse 10. But what we see happening that Jesus confronts on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount here is that the Jewish religious leaders were attempting to limit the scope of the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. 
Although the sin of coveting another man's wife is included in the Tenth Commandment, they, that is the Jewish leaders, evidently found it more convenient to simply ignore that commandment as well. Because in their view, whoever avoids the act of adultery has kept the Seventh Commandment. Thus they gave, that is the Jewish religious leaders here, they gave a very narrow definition of sexual sin and a very broad definition of sexual purity. Now, I realize that some people look at God's standard for sex and grimace, thinking to themselves, why is God such a killjoy? But this story of creation that we find in the Genesis account shows us that God is far from being a killjoy. Yes, God is against what kills true joy in our lives. This is why God forbids all sexual immorality whether it is sex before marriage or, in this particular context of Matthew 5, sex outside of marriage. Why? Because God loves His creation. God loves people. And so when God says not to do something, when God puts parameters around something, boundaries, if you will, listen, He's doing it always, always, always for our benefit, for our good, but also for His glory. God created sex. And his design for sex is good when it stays between a man and a woman in marriage. Sex is designed by God to display the glory of God, first in creation and then in marriage. And yes, it is also for our good pleasure to enjoy. And so when we give in to sexual immorality... We are falling into the exact same sin as Adam and Eve, who did what? They simply trusted in their own wisdom over the wisdom of their creator. Do you realize what this means? It means that sex is a worship issue. Perhaps you've never thought about it this way, but sexual immorality is worshiping sex over the Creator. In fact, according to Romans chapter 1, Paul says that a distorted view of sex simply reveals a distorted view of God. Here's the point. You will either worship sex as a God, or you will use sex as a gift from God for the glory of God. So as our society moves away from the seventh commandment, Jesus moves in a different direction. He underscores the purity to which the law, the seventh commandment in particular, points us to. Notice what Jesus said here in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, Upon hearing these words, you shall not commit adultery. I'm sure most people in Jesus' audience 
sitting on the hill that day must have felt pretty smug. But this is where Jesus shocks his audience. By raising the bar on their ancient sexual standards. While the Pharisees focused on the letter of the law, notice what Jesus focused on in verse 28. He says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what Jesus is doing, he's moving us to a place we never saw coming. In fact, most of us here are probably blindsided by it now. But was intended by God all along. Jesus, in other words, he's getting down to the heart of the matter. Jesus is saying to us, it's not enough to simply avoid the act of physical adultery in order to fulfill the law. Why? Because the seventh commandment, Jesus is reminding us, is broken in the heart before it ever leads to the physical act. Just as we can commit murder in the heart with angry words. This is what Jesus told us in the previous section. I can commit murder in my heart with angry words, with insults towards another person. And just as that is true, so also we can commit adultery in the heart with lustful looks. Now, we need to understand the difference, though, between affirming beauty and appeasing lust. Lust is not finding someone attractive. Jesus is not saying it's wrong to look at a woman admirably. But it is wrong, he's saying, to do so lustfully. Pastor and author John Piper identifies lust as, and I quote, as sexual desire that is missing two elements. Honor and holiness. Sexual desire is itself a good thing. It's God-given, God-created. When Adam sees Eve, he was so struck by her beauty, he breaks out in song. Sexual desire is part of God's good creation. But it is meant to be governed by two concerns, honor toward the other person and holiness in obedience to God. When you remove those, sexual desire becomes lust. Don Carson who is a a biblical scholar, has written several books, and he adds this. This is not a prohibition of the normal attraction which exists between men and women, but of the deep-seated lust which consumes and devours, which in imagination attacks and rapes, which mentally contemplates and commits adultery. This word look that Jesus uses here can actually be translated keeps looking. So Jesus is not talking about a look. And if you're a woman, a look of a man. If you're a man, a look on a woman. Or perhaps even in our twisted sinfulness, a man on a man or a woman on a woman look. He's talking about a leering, lingering look that is intended to stir up lustful thoughts. 
And so it's not the first look that is sin. It's the second look that swells with lust and feeds upon the person. David Dockery and David Garland are blunt but accurate in their assessment when they write, the man lusts for her and adulterates her. The woman is made into an object. Lust is completely self-centered, interested only in sexual gratification. It treats other persons as things to be exploited. It adulterates them. When the lust is filled, the object of lust is discarded and another object is sought out. Now, it's also important to note that Jesus is not saying, please understand this. He is not saying that looking lustfully is the same as committing adultery. Don't be stupid here. And say to yourself, well, since I've already committed adultery in my heart with my lustful looks, I might as well sleep with him or her. That kind of thinking is a perversion of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is aiming for the heart and he's telling us that adultery is simply the culminating result of the body going where the heart has already gone lustfully. And yes, by this standard, this radical standard, that means we are all guilty of committing adultery in the heart. Now, perhaps we should stop here and answer a question. Why such a radical standard? Why such a radical standard of sexual purity? Why does Jesus give this to us? Well, notice this in your notes. It's because lust in the heart will devour you. It's insidious. Insidious is a word that I think best captures the deceptive and destructive nature of lust. According to Webster's Dictionary, insidious means causing harm in a way that is gradual or not easily noticed awaiting a chance to entrap, having a gradual and cumulative effect. Dictionary.com says insidious means stealthily treacherous or deceitful, intending to entrap, operating or proceeding in an inconspicuous or seemingly harmless way, but actually with grave effect. Insidious. Not a word we use a lot, but it is a it's, it's a word that captures and best describes the sin of lust. Why? Because lust, at the core, is deceptive and it's destructive. And so when you think lust, think deceptive, think destructive. Lust is so sinister that it actually leads us to feel really content with ourselves so long as we haven't committed the physical act of adultery. In fact, I would venture to say that even now in our audience, there are men and women who think they would never commit adultery, but who actually enjoy the sin of adultery in their minds, hearts, and imaginations. Why is it that so many people peruse Instagram and the Internet? 
you are doing by proxy what you would never dream of doing in actuality. That's the insidious nature of lust. And eventually, Jesus says it will devour you. Listen, lingering lust in the heart has become the door through which many people have walked to their destruction. The common statement that you hear over and over and over and over again from people who have fallen into sexual sin is, I never thought that would happen to me. No one does. That's the insidious nature of it all. Lust is insidious. Lust seeks to slowly enslave you and then devour you. So don't be a fool here. You can't just dabble in sensual voyeurism. Sensual sins are always preceded by sensual fantasies. This was precisely the case with King David and his sin with Bathsheba. Here's a man who's walking on the rooftop and he sees a beautiful woman bathing It starts with a gaze, and then it turns into a lustful longing. And then it turned into a question. David's asking, who is she? What do you you mean you're asking, who is she? That should never have been been your concern. Who is she? Well, she's not your wife. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. But David would not be denied. And so he calls for her. And you know the story. He sleeps with her. And then she gets pregnant. And now he has to cover up one sin after another until finally he has Uriah the Hittite killed. The fantasy preceded the act. That's the insidious nature of lust. No sensual sin was ever committed that was not first imagined in the heart and mind. Few things in life bring more pain, bring more shame to more people than lust in the heart. So the question then becomes, well, how? How can we live in such a sex-crazed culture and remain pure in heart? And the answer is we must guard our hearts. We must guard the heart against lust that devours. Notice this in your notes. A godly heart will protect itself in advance from lustful or lust-satisfying situations avoiding them when possible, or fleeing them when necessary. You see, just as the adulterous heart panders to itself in advance, so the godly heart will protect itself in advance. In fact, Jesus goes on and He actually says that adultery begins both in both the heart and with the eye. That's interesting. You see, the heart moves the eye And the eye, what we see, inflames lust in the heart. In other words, there is a relationship, Jesus is telling us, between the eye and the heart. Knowing this, Job said in Job 31.1, I made a covenant with my, what? My eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Paul, later on in the New Testament, he exhorts young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2 to flee 
youthful lust and pursue righteousness. And this is exactly what we find Joseph doing in Genesis when Potter's first wife tried to seduce him. He flees. He ran for his life. Why? Because Joseph understood the insidious nature of lust. So be on guard. Be on guard against the lust that seeks to devour you. It's insidious. And for this reason, Jesus not only calls us to such a radical standard of sexual purity, but what we see next here in this section of verses on the Sermon on the Mount is that he now calls us to a radical strategy of sexual purity. Jesus shows us just how serious Lust in the heart is when he says in verses 29 through 30, look at it again with me. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Why? For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, every time I read these verses here, the, the words of Jesus here in these verses, I, I, my mind always goes back to the life or death choice of Aaron Ralston. Perhaps some of you are familiar with his story. It was actually made into a movie. In April 2003, Aaron was hiking alone in Canyonlands National Park in Utah. And while descending down a a narrow canyon, a suspended boulder became dislodged, crushing his right forearm and pinning it against the canyon wall. And since he had not told anyone of his trip, he realized nobody would be searching for him. Over the next five days, he tried his best to move the 800-pound boulder, but as you might imagine, to no effect. Running out of little food and water he had available, he realized that his only hope of survival was to actually amputate his arm. And so using a dull two-inch pocket knife, he spent an agonizing hour slowly sawing muscle and bone until he was free. He climbed out of the canyon and eventually was rescued. Now, it's difficult to imagine doing what Aaron Ralston did. I'm not sure I could do that. But he realized that either he lose his arm, however painful that would be, or he lose his life. Given the options, he had to make an extreme choice in order to avoid certain death. And much like that decision, Jesus is telling us here that lust in the heart demands just as radical a sacrifice in order to save our lives and even our souls. Here's the point. Jesus is telling us, as kingdom citizens, he is saying, listen, be ferocious in killing sin or it will be killing you. As Sinclair Ferguson says, act decisively, immediately, even if it must be painful. The drastic nature of the remedy is simply the index of the radical danger of the sin. 
It's not a situation for negotiation. So if a man would cut off his right arm with a dull pocket knife in order to save his physical life, how much more then should we be willing to do whatever it takes to save our souls from spiritual death? This is what Jesus is saying. This is the strategy he's given to us. From teens all the way to senior adults. Jesus is telling us in this strategy, notice it here in your notes, to ruthlessly eliminate anything in your life that stands in the way of sexual purity. Again, Jesus says, and I quote his words, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. And perhaps you're wondering, why would I do such a thing like that? That is so radical. Why? And Jesus tells us, because it is more profitable, more beneficial for you that one of your members, like an eye or a hand, perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. The idea is if your eye keeps on causing you to stumble into lustful sin, which can lead you to hell, then it is far better, Jesus says, to pluck the eye out and throw it away than it is for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Better to throw the eye away than to have your body thrown into hell. Now, believe it or not, throughout history, some people have actually taken Jesus' words here literally instead of, physic- instead of figuratively. So don't be like the third century church father named Origen, who actually rolled naked over sharp briars, and when this failed to cure him of sexual lust, he took the drastic step of castrating himself. He would later regret this decision and conclude he may have misinterpreted what Jesus actually meant. You think? He did misunderstand what Jesus said. Because the real problem was not with his eyes or even his male genitals. The real problem was with with what? His heart. Think about it. The real problem is never with our eyes or our hands. The root of sin always lies in the heart. Why? Because if you were to gouge out your right eye and to chop off your right hand, the problem remains. You would still ogle with your left eye and fondle with your left hand. Listen, cutting off your hand and plucking out your eye doesn't stop you from lusting with your imagination. And since evil thoughts, Jesus tells us later on in the book of Matthew, since evil thoughts arise from the heart, mutilation... Or amputation can't cure lust in the heart. So what then does Jesus mean? What is he talking about here with such language? Just this. Spiritual mortification is the pathway to purity, not physical mutilation or amputation. Now, why does Jesus focus on the eye and the hand? Why does he give those two members of the body as illustrations? Well, the eye is chosen because what we see, listen, matters. 
What we see matters. And the hand is chosen because what we do, our behavior matters. Jesus is using, in these words here, he's using exaggeration called hyperbole to prove a point. He's urging us to do whatever is necessary to eliminate anything that stands in the way of sexual purity in our lives. As, again, Don Carson writes, we are to deal drastically with sin. We must not pamper it, flirt with it, enjoy nibbling a little of it around the edges. We are to hate it, crush it, and dig it out. It's actually the same thing that the Apostle Paul would later say in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, when he writes, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then he gives a list of examples to put to death. You know what the first one is? Sexual immorality. Impurity. Lust. Evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, Paul says, the wrath of God is coming. Listen. No one, no one just wakes up and commits adultery. They commit adultery after years of entertaining lust and establishing habits that reinforce those lusts. This is why new habits must be formed. This is why we must crucify our lust-filled flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us as kingdom citizens. Paul tells us in Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, that indwells each and every Christ follower here, if by that Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, Paul says. And then he tells us in Romans 13.14, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In other words, Paul is saying the same thing that Jesus is telling us here. Don't give your lustful flesh any room to breathe. Why? Because it's insidious. So we must be willing, therefore, to take drastic measures to eliminate anything that stands in the way of our sexual purity. For some, that may mean no cable, no Netflix. For others, that may mean no Instagram, no Facebook. For a few, it may mean not going to Planet Fitness or the neighborhood swimming pool. If pornography is an issue in your life, it means putting a filter on your computer. It means putting a control app on your phone and letting someone else have the password so you cannot disable it. If you're married... It may mean your spouse has unlimited access to your phone, your email, your computer, and all your social media accounts. So what about you? Where are you in the fight against lust? Because everyone deals with this. 
Are you struggling with it? Sometimes succeeding, sometimes failing, but always repenting and striving to bring your thoughts and eyes into greater submission to our Lord Jesus Christ. The point is that we should be willing as Christ followers to do whatever it takes to deal with our sin. Either do what it takes to deal with lust in your life or or Jesus is warning us here, ignore it, excuse it, indulge in it, and eventually suffer for it in hell. As Dockery and Garland note, sin is serious business. We are to perform, he says, radical surgery on anything that would cause us to be cut off from eternal life. Frederick Breener said it this way, better to go limping into heaven than leaping into hell. So Jesus' strategy here is rather simple, powerful, not always easy to do. Ruthlessly eliminate anything in your life that stands in the way of sexual purity. And then he adds this on as another issue of the strategy. Honestly evaluate your eternal destiny if you continue in a life of sexual immorality. And this is where the warning comes from Jesus Christ. You see, in Jesus' teaching here in this section of four verses... The lust, listen to me now, please follow the logic here that Jesus is giving us. The lust that leads to adultery will also lead to hell. And that is the ultimate reason why sin must be taken seriously. Jesus wants us to see the destruction, the eternal destruction of sin. Sexual immorality will lead you down a dead-end road. You think it will make you happy and satisfy you, but Jesus says it will lead you to hell. Now, please understand, this does not mean that everyone who commits sexual sin goes to hell. That's not what Jesus is saying. But it does mean that hell is the direction in which all sin leads at the same time do not walk out of here and believe the myth that says all sin is the same perhaps you've thought that perhaps you've even said that all sin is not the same all sin is not the same according to the bible and all sin is not the same in its effects The consequences of sexual sin is far greater. Cheating on your spouse causes far greater damage than cheating on your taxes. Yes, both are sinful and both deserve the judgment of God. However, both sins leave vastly different ripple effects in their wake. This is why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, listen to what he says. He says, flee, not from cheating on your taxes, he says, flee from sexual immorality. And then he tells us why. All other sins a person commits 
are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Are sexual sins forgivable? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we shout hallelujah to that. We say amen to that. We rejoice in that. Listen to how Paul describes the sexually immoral who have repented of their sin and have turned to Jesus Christ in the gospel. He tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 11, And such were some of you, but you were now washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you know what this means? It means there is no sexual sin so bad that it can't be forgiven. And there is no person here this morning or even outside these walls who is so dirty that he or she cannot be washed clean when they run to Jesus in repentance. Listen, the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the cross can wash us clean from the stain of our sins, including sexual sins. And the power of the resurrection can break the change of bondage to this sin. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus calls us here, yes, to a radical standard and a radical strategy when it comes to our sexual purity as kingdom citizens. But he also... Don't leave this out. He also calls us to His radical grace and mercy. Listen, Jesus has never turned away anyone who's come running to Him. Jesus knows the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And so God's remedy for a sinful heart is a new heart. And His answer for our sinfulness is Christ's righteousness in the gospel. Listen, we all sit here together guilty of sin. But the good news is that Jesus came to save us from the very hell that He warns us here in the Sermon on the Mount. He came to give us new hearts that hunger and thirst now for righteousness rather than for lustfulness and sinfulness. I love what God says in Ezekiel 36, 26, where he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Second Corinthians five seventeen, Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so what this tells us here, what this means in the power of the gospel, listen, lustful desires don't need to rule you any longer if you are in Christ. And so let us, may we find freedom by treasuring Christ above all else as kingdom citizens. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's a hard word, but it is not a harmful word. Because you love us, you care for us. We thank you for the truth that Jesus reveals about ourselves when it comes to lust in the heart. 
And Lord, may we not be casual about this destructive sin. Lord, we ask that you would give us the grace, the power, the strength to do whatever is necessary to pursue sexual purity in our lives. Lord, help us to realize that the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit is there to change us and that it is stronger than sin's power to destroy us. And may we treasure you above all things as kingdom citizens. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. With your heads bowed, the instrumentalists are going to play through a chorus, and as they do, man, this is your opportunity to come before God right there where you're seated, to pray in the quietness of your heart, to confess your sin if need be, and receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, to plead for the grace of God and His power to ruthlessly eliminate anything that stands in the way of your sexual purity. Will you do business with the Lord?